Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And Rory, you've made it because last week we used our first ever beep to beep out where you were heading to, and you've just got back from... Just got back from Iraq, so been been in Baghdad and Mosul and Tikrit with an amazing Scottish-British charity uh, that clears mines, the Halo Trust, working on mine clearance. Yeah. Um, anyway, that uh, quite a lot of this visit made me think about some of the parallels with parts of what Ukraine is going through at the moment, particularly Mosul, which is horrifying. I mean, that obviously was torn to pieces by ISIS and by bombs and looks a lot like the kinds of scenes we're seeing in Mariupol at the moment. Um, Alistair, what what are you thinking about? Uh, Well, I can't claim to have been to Baghdad, but I have been talking to the opposition in Belarus who feel that the West is not targeting Lukashenko as robustly as they should be. So I think we can talk about Iraq and then we'll talk about Belarus and maybe talk a little bit about about the courage of opposition, not least uh, Navalny having been sent down for another trumped-up charge. So, and I guess with big economic statement now coming from the Chancellor, maybe we could talk a little bit about the relationship between Prime Ministers and Chancellors. sure you might Mm. have uh, something to say on that, Alistair. Yeah, having covered Margaret Thatcher and Nigel Lawson. Is that what you meant? (laughs) Yeah, I might have been meaning old Gordon Brown. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Well, look, let's... um, Why don't you first of all just tell us, it sounds fascinating what you've been doing working with a charity clearing mines, but I guess your broader impressions about how Iraq is right now. Well, I think the first thing is that it's it's very, very depressing. Um, the, the first thing that I noticed arriving at the airport is that as you drive down the airport road, there is a monument in the middle of the highway, which is a car which was hit by an American drone. And all around it, and indeed through most of the entrance to the city, are these huge posters to this Iranian... General Ghassim Soleimani, who was hit by a drone strike, and with him, pictures of this Iraqi militia leader who was killed in the same drone strike, and big signs saying American terrorism everywhere. There's simply no sign anywhere. And I, I went down into the old city, I went out on the river, I traveled to different bits of Baghdad. No sign anywhere of this trillion dollar war and all the investment that the United States put in, except for these huge statements about American terrorism and enormous posters of people who were attacking American and British soldiers. So who's putting those up? They're put up by the government. So it's a government that's been dominated for the last few years by different sorts of Shia parties. And many of the people who are coming in and out of government are connected to the militias which were killing British and American soldiers. So it's, it's, and a lot of it is backed by Iran. These are groups very, very closely connected to the Iranians. So there is a very, very strong sense in Baghdad of the very strong Iranian influence and the very strong links with people who were uh, the enemies of the coalition in Iraq. And that extends all the way up to Mosul because Mosul was a totally different part of the country bit of the country that was traditionally Sunni, uh, much closely, more closely associated with Saddam Hussein and the Ba'athists. But even there, the Shia militia have put these huge signs. And I was stopped by, I guess, or went through probably 15, 20 checkpoints 
on the drive up to Mosul, and many of them are not manned by Iraqi soldiers. They're manned by militiamen, often in very sinister black uniforms with skulls on their shoulders. So what, when, when, when you're talking to people, including those who celebrated and welcomed the fall of Saddam for obvious reasons, are they basically saying that they wish the invasion had never happened, they wish the change of government had never happened? I think by now they are completely traumatized. I mean, there are different sorts of things people would say. So some people would say they were pleased that Saddam went and they remembered 2003 being quite good. Then there was the collapse into civil war mm. in sort of 2005-06. Then they remember another reasonably good period, sort of 2008-9-10. And then they remember the ISIS takeover. Uh, and now just a country smashed to pieces from, sadly, from, from almost every direction. I mean, it, it's impossible really to believe this is one of the wealthiest, or in oil terms, one of the wealthiest oil-producing countries in the world because the roads are smashed, the buildings are not repaired. In, in Mosul, which is the second largest city, there's still only electricity four hours a day. Um, so I think people are just bewildered. And you were, you were deputy governor for a period in the, the post-invasion yeah. in, in Maizan. Yeah. Um, would, you recognize, would you say it's now worse than it was then? I think it's similar. I mean, I think the sad thing is how little progress has been made. And, and partly it's the way in which all of us, myself, my colleagues, my American colleagues, approach things. I was standing on the river and an old Iraqi man pointed to a bridge across the river in Baghdad and said, that's what the British built us in the, I guess, the 1930s. But the entire coalition occupation left us nothing. I mean, one of the strange things is although America and its allies were spending $100 billion a year, there's nothing that they've left behind. There are no hospitals or bridges or really anything much that you can point to uh, as signs of investment. It all felt mm. very, very short term, as though there was nothing sort of enduring left behind. Well, that sort of goes to the, what we were talking about last week in relation to, to Afghanistan. And in fact, you, you pointed out in your book about your time in Iraq that it took several years before post-Kosovo, post the conflict in Kosovo, Post the conflict in Afghanistan, Bosnia was the same. It took years to get the place even functioning at the uh, very, very basic level. What came through to me reading your book as well was that there's us in our case in London, Bush's case in Washington. You've got Paul Bramer as the kind of main guy, the main American guy post-invasion in Baghdad. And it wasn't just that you have this sense of a massive disconnect between the capitals and Baghdad. You had a sense of a massive disconnect between Bremer in Baghdad and you guys out in the field trying to make sense with what you were trying to, trying to resolve. Yeah, no, you're completely right. And, and I think it's, it goes to the heart of a, not, not just these big international interventions, not just Bosnia, Kosovo, but actually even development projects mm. that it's, Countries are just so much more complicated than we can believe. And there was an idea at the end of the 90s that somehow the West knew how to fix failed states. In fact, people yeah. wrote books called Fixing Failed States. But if you think about our own country, just how complex a state is, a government is, a legal system is, people's culture of their respect for the government. And if you lay that on top of a country that's been living under Saddam Hussein for 30 years, you topple him and you unleash goodness knows what. I mean, the, the truth, of course, in 
Afghanistan and Iraq is that what ultimately has come out are these sorts of Islamist governments. Uh, in the, in the case of Afghanistan, Taliban, and in the case of uh, Iraq, these Shia militia-dominated governments. And mm. it's in both cases, what you've sort of seen is a world in which the alternative to a very authoritarian rule, which was in Iraq, obviously Saddam Hussein, and in Afghanistan, was the communist, turned out not really to be a sort of functioning liberal democracy at all, but mm. a move back to. Yeah, much more violent forms of religious rule. Mm. You know, last week we were discussing intimidating politicians and we were both struggling to to think of that very... The one I thought of afterwards actually is relevant to this conversation and that's Dick Cheney. I found him very, very intimidating, Bush's vice president. And I remember a meeting at Camp David where, in fact, it was the most, one of the most extraordinary meetings I was ever at because basically Bush had asked Tony to go there and try to help him persuade Dick Cheney that they should take the Iraq decision down the United Nations route and that Bush should go back to the United Nations and give them a last chance, as it were, to, to agree that Saddam had to be tackled. And at one point, Bush wanted to talk about an, the anti-Americanism around the world. And Bush, to his, you know, I know he gets a very bad rep on lots of fronts, but he did understand that this anti-Americanism was real and it was a problem. And I said, well, do you know what I think the problem is? That every time you talk about democratization of places like Afghanistan or Iraq or any, anywhere else, people don't hear democracy. They hear Americanization. They think you're talking about the whole world being like America. And Cheney, who hadn't been saying much at all, he just sort of growled. So you're saying we shouldn't talk about democracy. And I, I said, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that when you say democratization, People don't hear that. And I think that the the thing, I, I can defend what we did in Iraq and I can f defend the way that Tony Blair and the cabinet handled that decision. But what I found very difficult to reconcile is this sense that the Americans who were clearly the biggest part, the biggest partner in the whole thing, that post-invasion, they really hadn't thought it through. And I think we made assumptions about the extent to which they had planned. And that was, I guess, our mistake as well. And the, and the aftermath led to, it didn't lead directly, you know, we, we, we under, we underestimated the impact of all this, the, the stuff that was going to pour in, the terrorism, the sectarianism, et cetera. Um, but I, 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 for me, that's what kind of sometimes keeps me awake at night is that, is that sense of not really having planned the aftermath. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I think the planning thing is very interesting because, of course, a lot of people say that about Afghanistan as well, that there wasn't a proper plan, there wasn't a proper strategy. But that sort of assumes that there could be a plan. Um, my assumption is that these things were closer to Mission Impossible. I don't believe that somewhere hidden in a filing cabinet was a plan which, if only we'd followed it, would have somehow mm. made everything okay. The, the mm. longer I spent, the more it seemed to me the idea that you could somehow plan for what was going to happen when you toppled a regime that had been in for 32 years and you find yourself in a country of 20 million people. Uh, all of whom from the beginning are going to have quite strong nationalist sentiments, are going to be pretty suspicious about what you're doing there, um, is probably itself over-optimistic. I mean, and so what's, what, what sort of happened? Why do you think the culture at that time made people believe that it was possible to somehow plan for this and that it would be possible to avoid the kind of things that we can see now? Um. I think because the sense we had was that there would be, although, albeit that Saddam had 
um, his own, he, he had his support, he had his networks, he had his infrastructure, but that actually I think we were possibly misled by that sense that there was this kind of, you know, euphoria that seemed to greet the fall. Um, and I think what we underestimated was the extent to which those forces were still reasonably strong and the other forces were then going to come in from outside and exploit the situation. Some of whom you've said are now kind of effectively running the show again, the Iranian militia. So I think that, I think it was maybe, this goes back to a thing we talked about again last week in relation to how the West has dealt with Putin, is perhaps that sense of you need hope, you need optimism, you need to believe that what you're doing is is going to lead to progress. And that sometimes leads you to, to think that things are better than they are. And I guess one of the consequences of this is that people are going to be very reluctant to intervene again. So well, that, that is, that, we've talked about that before, the, that, you know, I think you and I agree that failure to act in Syria is partly what's ended, landed us where we are now in Ukraine. I, and I, I definitely feel that um, the sad, the tragedy, I mean, the many, many tragedies, but one of the tragedies is that Bosnia suggested that it might be possible to have interventions that could, for example, in Rwanda have prevented a genocide, that there might be a middle road that the international community working together couldn't fix failed states, but might be able to at least play a part in ending wars and bringing, bringing some modicum of peace. Um, but these operations in Afghanistan and Iraq became so vast and exaggerated. Mm. Um, I, the, the most sort of thing, just, just to finish on that, I, I think a, sort of a couple of points. One is just how impressive these mine action charities are. So Halo Trust founded uh, in Scotland, um, and has done extraordinary work in Cambodia, but they've been in the middle of the ISIS-controlled territories. I think they've taken to pieces something like 4,000 improvised explosive devices, these extraordinary, horrible yeah. things which ISIS buried in walls, buried in the ground to try to hold on to the territory they'd taken. Um, and actually the courage of, of, of their Iraqi staff who are working their way slowly through trying to get these towns back. The second thing is just it... it makes you realize what an amazing thing it was, the rebuilding of Europe after the war, when you look at Mosul and see that six years after ISIS has left, the center of the city is craters, buildings with their roofs, sort of concrete roofs half off, one wall of a whole building still standing with its interior windows, but nothing else, rubble everywhere. And you, you can really sense what, the effort that went in, I mean, not just in London, but I mean, even more dramatically, right the way across Central Europe in trying to, to rebuild lives after the war and how tough it's going to be in Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, did you, when you were sort of looking at the scenes in Mosul, I don't know how, you, how closely you're able to follow what's been going on in Ukraine, but when you see the pictures of, from Mariupol and, and other places, actually, but that's the one that really seems to have sort of been the most dramatic and the most devastating, and you just think about the job ahead, and whether the world is up for, again, back to the same point, staying the course, doing it for the long term. And, and it's unbelievable, isn't it? And I, I think one of the things that I've noticed in all these places is it, it sounds a silly thing to say, but actually how important it is to take the time to rebuild these city centres in a way that respects people's cultural heritage, that there's a real temptation to think, OK, it's all been flattened and we'll go. And we did, actually did a bit of this in the city of London after the war, just throw up concrete buildings as quickly as we can, 
Mm. Um, and actually, I understand why in Poland they decided to try to rebuild cities as they were. Because Mosul, this incredible medieval city, has been smashed to pieces. And UNESCO is carefully trying to go through restoring the mosque, restoring the minaret, restoring people's houses. And, and I think in Mariupol, rebuilding that great iconic theater will be incredibly important for people's sense of pride in the sense that they've returned rather than just giving up. But, but there'll be pressure because people will feel, understandably, we're very short of cash. We've got to get yeah. going. We've got to get shelter up. Why are we wasting money, you know, rebuilding a theater or an opera house? But 10 years later, 20 years later, people will be very, very grateful they did it. Mm. One of the things that you, you mentioned at the beginning is that you've been talking to opposition leaders who've opposing Lukashenko, the Belarusian mm. leader. Yeah. Um, what sense are you getting of what's happening in Belarus and what we, what we might be doing there? Well, the, the opposition are genuinely worried and alarmed, I think, that because Putin has become this, for many parts of the world, this sort of total pariah, and also because he's, he's become the central figure of this whole thing. Uh, I m remember when Schultz did his speech in the Bundestag, he just talked about Putin's war, Putin's war, Putin's war. And their worry is actually that the role of Lukashenko as his, what they call his partner in crime, is being underplayed. And that, that, that is leading, for example, to, even though there have been sanctions put upon Belarus, and to be fair to our government, they've put some fresh ones on since the, since the invasion. But they think, but the, the opposition think that they're weaker. And I think they underestimate as well the extent to which Lukashenko is in many ways an even worse dictator than, than Putin. Um, and I was talking to this guy, Pavel Latushka, who's the leader of the kind of government in exile. He's exiled in Poland. And it's extraordinary. He's a former minister. He's a former ambassador. And he's now facing seven charges, one of which carries the death penalty as punishment. Uh, he's been labeled a terrorist. He's got relatives who've been thrown in jail back in Minsk. And he was, we were talking about the John, John Major Gordon Brown last week, setting out the need for a process by which we can at least envisage war crimes trial against, against Putin. And they were simply making the point that it's always about just about Putin, but actually Lukashenko is his partner in crime. They're joined at the hip. They've got to be treated in the same way. So that's, that's the kind of basic point that they've been, they've been making. And when you talk to these guys, you feel so kind of inadequate because you know, I think they've just got, we talk about Navalny and that, that's level of courage. And you sometimes wonder, you know, would, would we in our pampered British ways be able to sort of have that kind of courage and resilience? And so you end up saying, as I did, I said, look, well, there's not much I could do today, but would you like to write a piece for the new European? And, and of course, to them, they say, absolutely. That is exactly the sort of thing I want to do because I want to get the message out and we can send that out to ambassadors and to, to other media and so forth. So, but yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty worried about what's happening, and, and they do think that Belarus is more actively involved in the in the war than is than is widely understood. And of course, yeah, I think it was on the news this morning that there's talk of Belarusian troops now being um, lined up to replace so, some of those who have been who've, who've already fallen. It's I mean it's very much part of this whole sort of almost fascist narrative coming out of Moscow, isn't it? Yeah, there was this extraordinary scene of this Russian crooner in the stadium. Oh. Singing a song, yeah. And the song goes, Belarus is our home, Moldova is our home, Ukraine is our home, you know, all of this about greater Russia. Mm. Um, but it seems as though the, the deal that's been struck between Belarus and, and Russia is is not really for it to be incorporated, but it suits Putin better for it to be, or suits both of them better for it to be a semi-autonomous place. Also, there was, there was the, uh, Pavel was telling me that um, after the Crimea 
annexation, there were sanctions imposed on Russia, far greater than the sanctions that were imposed on, had been imposed on Belarus. For example, there was a ban on seafood being, being exported from yep. the European Union to, to, to Russia. So landlocked Belarus became a major importer of seafood. And, and, and exporter too, I think. Despite and not then having a exported coast. it yeah, to yeah, Russia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, amazing. <laughs> so they were yeah. saying that those kind of loopholes, unless you're as tough with Belarus as you are with Russia, those loopholes are going to exist and they're going to be exploited. So one of the things that obviously Belarus does a lot of is, is potash for fertilizer. Yeah. And that, that, that's the other thing that I think people are beginning to talk about more, but it's a very, very strange fundamental thing. We've, we've understood now that how deeply we're dependent on oil and gas from Russia and the region. Mm. But we're only beginning to understand just how much the world is dependent on Russian and Ukrainian food. Absolutely. I mean, and fertilizer. And fertilizer. And how all those things come together. So you, yeah. I mean, and, and for some countries, it's unbelievable. I mean, I think, I believe places like Egypt, Bangladesh get 60% of their wheat coming in from Russia and Ukraine. Well, I, and, I, have to, I have to be honest, I had no idea until this whole thing started that a third of the world's wheat comes out of Russia and and Ukraine. And sunflower, they've already started to ration sunflower oil in supermarkets in Spain and Italy. It's something like 80% of our sunflower is coming out of uh, Russia and Ukraine. And then you get these extraordinary spillover effects, which, you're not, which you wouldn't anticipate. So suddenly farmers in Latin America are now reducing the amount of fertilizer they're putting on grass and are expecting to have thinner cows at the end of the year. And all of this is happening when there's a global food crisis. So at the same time, people are, nine million people on the edge of starvation in Afghanistan, people on the edge of starvation in Yemen. And of course, we've recently had famines in Somalia and South Sudan. So it's, and at the same time, and this I suppose is the most uncomfortable thing. I remember when I was the DEFRA minister, farmers in Britain would often say, you're pushing too hard and taking land out of production. You've got to think about food security. There's a reason why we subsidized food after the Second World War, which is that we need to produce some of our own food in case we were in a world in which we couldn't import all the food we wanted. And I have to admit that I absolutely bought into the conventional story of the time. All the civil servants said it, all the ministers said it, which is, no, 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 this question of food security is the thing of the past. We're not going to be back in a world in which we're going to suddenly be doing Atlantic convoys of wheat in from the United States. And as a result, I, I, I check the figures, but it's something like that we've gone from something like 12 million acres under cultivation in Britain down to 9 million acres. Mm. And the farmers, of course, in Cumbria, there were good reasons for it. Right? A lot of this was about bringing nature back, restoring natural landscapes. But farmers just heartbroken because land that they'd been paid to drain, they were now being paid to stop up those field drains and reflood their land. They were finding, you know, they were reducing their stocking numbers down to having only one sheep in three acres and saying all the time, there's going to be a time when you'll want to be able to produce food. Mm. Well, interesting, the Minute Batters, who's the head of the National Farmers Union, who I think is very impressive. Um, but I saw her this week, she was making the point that, yes, of course, there's got to be action against Russia and these sanctions are the, if you like, the weapon of choice. But that is going to have an impact, a massive impact on our farmers in relation to fertilizer costs, in relation to fuel costs, and in relation to food security. And on your nature point, I don't know if you're aware of this, Rory, but the European Commission is apparently delaying action that was going to be announced this week in relation to two things. One was um, legally binding targets on nature, 
and the, the, the reclaiming, if you like, of, of land. And secondly, on use of certain pesticides that were going to be outlawed, which are now that, so that's all being delayed. So they, they say they they remain committed to sustainable farming, but given what's happening in Ukraine, given the impact on food supply and food security across the European Union. So I think we're only just really waking up. Oil and gas people have got that, as you say, immediately. But the food, if anything, I think is going to be even more serious. And one of one one of the fundamental problems, I guess, is that what we've often done in our environmental policies is to outsource the problem. So uh, we feel good about ourselves because we're not burning coal, but we end up buying goods from China where they're burning the coal. We feel good about ourselves that we're not wrecking our landscape doing intensive wheat production, and then we're just buying the wheat from Russia, which is destroying its landscape doing mm, intensive mm, wheat production. Mm. So I think. We relied on this globalized world. We relied on being able to outsource our environmental footprint to other people because what we were basically doing is talking about our production of carbon or our production of you know fertilizers and runoffs and pollutants, not our consumption. Right? We never yeah. focused on the fact that we were consuming all this stuff and other people were destroying their landscapes in order to feed us. Um, and this is going to be a very, very difficult wake-up call. And I, I can feel, you know, already talking to you, a lot of my friends who are environmental campaigners are going to be very troubled by this whole conversation. They're also going to be troubled by the fact that inevitably people are going to start burning coal mm. as part of the uh, response, short-term response to how we get off the reliance. And I think we're going to move back into a world in Britain in which we are going to have to think about yeah, more food production and how we balance it with nature. And we can't simply embrace rewilding as being a simple solution mm. if we're in a world in which people in Britain obviously will end up in food poverty, mm. but people in other parts of the world are going to end up literally starving. I mean, as we know in Afghanistan, people are literally selling their organs because they can't feed their children. But you're, all, you're already seeing it. Uh, Boris Johnson's about to make a big tip towards nuclear. I'm not saying that's the right thing or a wrong thing, but it just under, underlines that there's change. Shell have just announced that a field that they were not going to explore, they now are. Um, and, and funny enough, <laughs> I saw a tweet the other day from Gary Lineker, uh, who, who just made the point, this was in relation to the, the devastation across Ukraine. How can one man have ended up having so much power over so many different lives? And But this is these are all... They're not all just consequences, and our standard of our cost of living crisis. I hate the way that Johnson is trying to pitch it all against Ukraine, given that so much of it is as a result of a decade of conservative policy. However, Putin's actions are now having a massive impact on all of our lives, and, and that's why, uh, obviously, a lot of my friends are, particularly here in the Middle East, are very troubled that we talk so much about Ukraine and say, you know, challenge me to say there's an element of racism here. You know, why were you not talking more about Syria? Why are you not talking more about Afghanistan? Why are you talking about Ukraine? But one of the reasons why this has been such a body blow is that we are beginning to realize now that wars in Syria, wars in Afghanistan, did not directly affect the energy and food security mm. of Europe. And until 1989, of course, the Cold War created a system where basically our states were insulated from Russia, right? We, we found other ways of supplying our energy and food, which were not deeply dependent on Russia. Since 89, in ways that we haven't begun to imagine, and it's happened very, very quickly, really just in the last 25 years, this global world has made us so dependent. And this is part of the reason why Putin 
remains quite confident that he's going to be able to get away with it. Because the yeah. more you follow through all the details, the consequences, the more difficult things that you and I deeply believe in, like sanctions, appear. Yeah. All right, Roy. Well, that's all been a bit heavy. <laughs> and moderately, moderately to extremely depressing. Um, and because this podcast, by the way, Roy, is doing so well and has been number one at Apple charts all week, apparently we have to have, take breaks so that they can run adverts. So we'll have a little break and then we'll come back and talk about chancellors and prime ministers. Great. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister at that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell. Alistair, last week we, we were talking about speaking truth to power and slightly to my surprise, because I see you as a pretty outspoken individual, you, you didn't come up with a particularly striking example of speaking truth to power, but then I've been reading your diaries and I've just come across one with good Putin <laughs> reference. So Friday, October 11th, Moscow. Tony Blair spent several hours one-on-one with Putin. For the photo call later... Tony Blair was wearing what I can only call an Afghan hippie coat. I said there was no way he could wear that. Mohni Barra, the protection officer, had a fairly ordinary-looking sheepskin, and I suggested they swap. This is ridiculous, Cherie said. Just ignore him. I said my job was to stop him looking ridiculous and try to get the press focused on real issues and not his bloody clothes. So I said if he walked out in that, they'd fall about and we'd have endless blather about his coat rather than the substance. Putin was looking on a bit bemused, and Tony Blair a bit embarrassed. Tony Blair said, he doesn't like my coat very much. (laughs) Putin smiled and nodded in a way that made me think he thought I was right not to. Yeah. Yeah, and then as as I remember it, Tony then tried on Moni, the the protection officer's coat, and it didn't fit perfectly, but it was better than the thing that he was wearing. So they swapped... And Modi, who was one of my favourite coppers, he put on Tony's Afghan hippie coat and went into a, an immediate impersonation of Elvis doing Return to Sender. <laughs> How does this work? With, I mean, does Putin have any sense of humour at all when this is all going on? He he had a glint in his eye because he could see. I mean, look, there's no doubt at all. He he, he believed I was right. The co- I can't describe this coat to you. And also, Cherie called me a fascist. <laughs> for, for trying to get him to take it off because I think she'd bought it for him. But it was like, it was like almost down to his ankles. It was sort of, it had these stripes of fake fur on it. And it was just utterly absurd. And I promise you, if he'd have walked out with Putin wearing that coat, Putin, of course, was just wearing a suit with a kind of smart black coat on top of it. He might even have had a hat, I can't remember. No, I don't think he did have a hat. But if Tony had walked out, but there is one picture, I don't know whether are uh, brilliant. And by the way, the guy who's been doing our social media films, illustrating these is 
just deserves a pay rise because he seems to find pictures for everything. There was one picture where you can see Moni in the background in the Afghan hippie coat. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Unless that's Vasco doing this stuff. Um, uh, doing these amazing images. Listen, Roy, if, we, if you're yeah. going yeah. to just land, if you're just going to land my book on me, and by the way, the one I said last week, was it was about Iraq that I was trying to speak to <laughs> about. I've, as you know, I've been reading your book about Iraq and sent, do you keep a diary, by the way? Yeah, I, I try to keep a diary. I've, yes. I've stopped. I'm not, not, not well-disciplined like you, but okay. I was writing okay. stuff down around. No, because yeah. the, the, the yeah. detail in your book is, I'm thinking this guy definitely keeps a diary. It does underline, though, what a kind of quite a scary position you were in in that job. And that comes through in the book. You're, you know, the, you're always a little bit on edge. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, I, I, I feel this. And I, I've got, obviously, it's been a long time now, maybe 25, 30 years since I started working in these places. And friends of mine, who continued working in Afghanistan or Iraq, you do get a sense as time goes on after 10 or 15 years that they have been living on the edge all the time. And that mm. sense of being in a permanent state of emergency is very, very wearing. But it's also what some people like, isn't it? Some people who work in these, that's what they like. Yeah, but I think you do come close to a sort of, people do come close to a sort of nervous breakdown because mm. you can't quite live on that kind of edge. And actually, I, I wanted to sort of come back to that for a second, I on a sort of slightly more serious note, because presumably in doing your job at number 10 was also like that. It was permanent emergency, permanent crisis, 24-7. And that must have been shattering. It's just not good for you, is it? No, it's not good for you at all. And I think what comes through in my diaries is, and it's one of the reasons probably why eventually I left and haven't really gone back in the same way, um, is that it did have a, I think, pretty profound effect on my mental health. And I, I'm fun, fun enough, I go swimming every morning at the Lido around the corner with Fiona, and there's a guy there called Jim Down, who's, who works in intensive care. And he's actually written a couple of really good books during COVID. Um, but he's he read my diaries recently and he, and he said, he basically said two things. One, he thinks Fiona must be a saint to have lived with me, but also just that this must have been just doing such profound damage to the insides of my head. So, yes. yeah, I think I think it yeah. is a bit like that. Yeah, I think it's so. Um, talking of damaged insides of heads and intense people, we're just coming up now to the Chancellor's statement. And... Obviously, right at the heart of this whole book is the relationship between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And I know that in a way that they're both friends of yours and you feel a kind of loyalty towards both of them. But give us a sense of this. I mean, why did Gordon Brown matter so much? What is it about the position of Chancellor that somehow means that it's almost the only person in the cabinet that they feel they can't fire? It's the only person in the cabinet really with an independent voice. I think the Chancellor can be fired and Chancellors have been fired. Um, but I, I mean, I think bizarrely, both Tony and I at different points without knowing the other one was doing it made exactly the same point about, about Gordon, which is that he was brilliant and impossible. And Tony used to say, if he was just impossible, that's easy. You get rid of him. If he's just brilliant, that is perfection. Okay. But if you're brilliant and impossible, if you're impossible but brilliant, that makes it difficult. And Tony, I think to his credit, a lot of people at different times said, look, this relationship's not working. Gordon's, you know, causing a lot of grief and causing a lot of friction and so forth. And of course, that Gordon's side would say that we were doing that and round and round and round it went. But if I go back over the record of the, of the new Labour government, I think a lot of the best stuff that we did was when they were working together. And sometimes when they were working not in the most cooperative and, and friendly kind of way. Um, but and I do think as well, your point about the Treasury, you know this from your time in government, 
the Treasury is the most important single department because it, 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 there's no big government decision that isn't ultimately about money. Yeah. And if you have a, a chancellor like Gordon Brown, who is incredibly intellectually lively and restless and, and you know, has his own sort of sense of his own agenda, then that gives him even more power. Um, I think, funny enough, the only relationship I can think of, number 10, number 11, that didn't sort of go that conventional way that most of them go was Cameron and Osborne. And I think, to be honest, I think it's because both of them, actually, the politics were always more interesting to them than the economics. Yeah, although although it is true that in that relationship, too, I was very struck by just how much power Osborne had and the often the sense that if you wanted to get something done, you needed to get to him, not David Cameron. For example, I mean, even small things. Uh, when I wanted to try to get rural broadband rolled out or mobile masks built, you'd sit in the tea room with George Osborne and I would emerge with a £150 million mobile mm. infrastructure project, which would allow these things to be built around, which you could never get out of the department that was responsible for broadband because they couldn't make a, they couldn't find £150 million down the bottom of the sofa. Well, it's interesting. I, 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 was, in, I was involved in a, a mental health campaign with Andrew Mitchell, your fellow yep. former yep. Secretary of State for yep. International Development, Norman Lamb, who was the Lib Dem yep. mental health minister in the coalition. And we did the same approach. We were trying to get more money for mental health and we, actually, we, we just targeted Osborne. And we ended up getting 600 million quid in the spending review. Yeah, it, it was. It's, and I thought that's one of the things. I mean, he's a very, very complicated figure, obviously. Um, uh, and... Um, you know, didn't didn't do didn't do didn't do my careers any favors. But he was somebody who, if he was captivated by an idea, felt that he could make it happen. Wanted mm. to try to make it happen. Mm. I, was do you think that was true with Gordon Brown, or was he a different sort of personality? Would you have been able to charm him in the tea room into putting money into mental health, or would he oh, less yeah. so? Right? Or maybe- uh, no, Gordon. Gordon. I'll tell you what Gordon's brilliance as a politician was. He was very good at making other people think that they had an idea <laughs> that they were then pressing him to do, but he wanted to do it all along. Right. Uh, he, he's a very, very canny sort of guy. No, Gordon was somebody, I think, who... Gordon, Gordon was a great campaigner. He loved campaigns. Um, and, he, and I don't mean that just in terms of political campaigns. Like, you know, debt write-off, trying to get the world to write off debt. That to Gordon was like a big idea that he wanted to build the alliances, build the arguments and so forth. Um, so no, Gordon was somebody who you could definitely approach. Just something that's really interesting me. I mean, the, he was a kind of child prodigy, wasn't he? He was sort of the most brilliant student that had ever been at his university and he got like this incredible first and then he was chancellor of his university in his 20s. and Rector, yeah. Yeah, rector. So, And he was an incredibly big figure in the Labour Party, much, much bigger than Tony Blair, I guess, when they both came into Parliament. Oh, much when I was more a, experienced. Yeah, when I, when I was a, when I was a journalist, um, funny, I, I used to help Gordon with his... He had a, col- a weekly column in the Daily Record, and it was paid of my life. The night before deadline, it was there, I've, I haven't written my column, I haven't written my column, what do you think I should write about? And I knew what he meant was, you know, will you help me write it? Um, and and I, was, I was really closer to Gordon at first than to Tony. And also, if you'd have, I, I've often said this, if you'd have had a, a poll of Labour members and Labour MPs the night before John Smith died, saying, if John Smith died tomorrow, who would be the Labour leader? It would have been a landslide for Gordon Brown. It was only the actual event, the reality of the moment, that had people saying, mm, do you know what? 
maybe it should be Tony. And then by the time, you know, the end of that first day, when the day that John Smith died, it was kind of, you were talking to people who would definitely have said the day before, it'll be Gordon, who was suddenly saying, think it should be Tony. And I think that was, to be absolutely frank, I think that was the cause of the of the difficulties that, that then transpired. Some of them were about policy, but I think a lot of them were just about that sense of, you know, Tony suddenly emerged in the way that he did. And could, could people see at the time uh, that Gordon Brown wasn't necessarily the greatest sort of delegator, that his intensity, his seriousness might mean for quite a sort of introverted, grumpy thing? I mean, do people worry about that when they're trying to select a Labour leader? Are they thinking, is this guy going to be comfortable running a big, complex government you know, would they have weighed Tony up against Gordon on that? I think there was. I think there was a sense of in '94 when John Smith died. I think there was a sense. And we're coming up to the 25th anniversary. I can't believe it's so long ago of the first win uh, in '97. So 28 years since John died, and 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 I think that there was a sense that Tony was just maybe more rounded, but the, uh, but also that Gordon was kind of perfect to be Chancellor. And he was, I don't care what the Tories say about the gold and, and all the other stuff. Gordon was a terrific chancellor. And he just, you know, he did he used the power that he had to the Treasury to do big things. But I just wondering whether we, what you're reading is of the Johnson-Sunak relationship and what you think is going on there. Uh, it's very hard to read. I mean, I think the big difference between Johnson and Tony Blair is that Tony Blair was a very serious politician. I don't believe that Johnson is. I think it was, there was a very interesting little vignette at the weekend while you were away when Johnson made this utterly ridiculous, apparently Michael Gove put him up to it, but this utterly ridiculous speech where he said that, you know, he equated the U- the, 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 the Ukrainians' defence of their own country with the Brits voting for Brexit. I mean, it's just so offensive on so many levels to so many people. And Sunak was on the TV the next day uh, in advance of the spring statement, and he could, you could see how uncomfortable he was. And it was like the Jimmy Savile thing, you know, when when Johnson sort of tried to smear Keir Starmer over Jimmy Savile and Sunak did the rounds and he said, well, I wouldn't have used those words. And he was at it again. I, he, and he actually said something extraordinary. He said, I wouldn't have used... They played him the clip on the Sophie Ridge show on Sky. They played yeah. him the Johnson clip. Yeah. And he said, well, I wouldn't have used those words and Boris Johnson didn't use those words. Well, we just saw him using them. What the hell are you talking about? And And I think what that says to me is that he's... I don't know. He obviously does have ambition. He probably does think that Johnson's a bit of a joke. Um, He's not a stupid guy, Sunak, is my sense of him. And yet, because he's the prime minister and Sunak's the chancellor, he sort of has to go along with stuff. I think one of the worst things is not just Sunak's relationship. All of them have to go out and defend all this rubbish. Sajid Javid was doing it yesterday. And and, and Boris seems to demand a very extreme level of defence. I mean, you get the sense that often number 10 are angry with Rishi Sunak that he's not more sort of exaggerated in his defence. What they really like is the sort of style of defence that you see coming from Jacob Rees-Mogg and that you see from coming from uh, Nadine Dorries. Nadine Dorries, yeah, who, I mean, just looks at him. I mean, he's of puppy dog eyes every time he speaks. And, of course, this is what make, gives me pause for thought. I mean, I look at Johnson, I think you feel the same, and think, how can anybody find him remotely, politically or personally attractive in any way? Um, but that's when you have to sort of stand back and say, well, some people do, therefore you have to try to analyse that. But I think for Sunak, Sunak obviously strikes me as he's quite a serious guy, he's quite a detailed guy. Um, I think he's very thin-skinned, is my sense, very prickly. 
Um, I think he's really struggling to find a voice in this whole cost of living crisis. And when he talks about feeling your pain, I mean, I don't think people buy that when he has his 300 pound coffee cup and his, you know, his endlessly fashionable hoodies and his incredibly wealthy wife and his incredibly sort of numerous homes around the place. Do you know him, by the way? Do you, do you have... You're, do you have... You're, I, I do know him a bit. I do know him a bit. Um, uh, you're talking to me, incidentally, in what looks like pretty fashionable hoodie uh, outfit at the moment. I can see you on Zoom in your fashionable hoodie. Well, I can um, actually tell you my hoodie. If you look there, it's, uh, they, they, it was an award. Again, it's Ramona of the Year. Ramona of the Year. It was, it was yes. awarded to me by the Vote Leave campaign. Oh, yeah. God, blimey. So Rishi Sunak came into Parliament five years after me. I saw quite a lot of him because, weirdly, Rishi, myself, and John McDonnell all worked next to each other in the library. John McDonnell and I shared a table in the <laughs> House of Commons library, and Rishi was just across the way. And I used to chat to him a lot. I mean, I began, I guess, disagreements with him, just being completely appalled that he'd come out so strongly for Brexit. I couldn't quite believe that he'd, he'd made that call. He's a true believer. He's a, he's a sovereign individual true believer. Yeah, yeah, I think because he, I sensed at the time that he felt that he was taking a real risk with his career. He knew that this was going to really annoy Cameron and Osborne and that if they won the campaign, he'd, he'd be in trouble. And he was nervous about that, but he stuck to it. Mm-hmm. And of course, in a way, it was political genius because he became chancellor more quickly than almost, I think, anybody. I don't know the records, but I'd reckon in probably 200 years or since it's Pitt the Younger or somebody. The idea of becoming Chancellor of the Exchequer within, I think it was four years of entering Parliament, mm. is, is unbelievable, right? I mean, Gordon Brown had got in 83, wasn't Chancellor until mm. 97. Yeah. Um, so, and of course, he came out very strongly for Boris. And that was the second. I mean, if you're just analyzing, I don't like to analyze people like this, but if you're just thinking about pure Machiavellian political mm. gambles, he made mm. two enormous gambles that really paid off for him. Well, and also they, they, I mean, the, the, the Tory party in that, in the Johnson campaign, I mean, they used him almost like he was the, he was the second voice in the campaign. Because he's so unusual, because he's somebody who you would entirely expect. And that's why I was so sort of surprised that he endorsed Boris so strongly. Because mm. I'd always had him down as this, you know, quiet, thoughtful, quite argumentative. I mean, he is, he's, he's a sort of real kind of, you get a sense of somebody who was a real schoolboy debater. Mm. Um, so you can have a really long. I remember trying to. Uh, we were. He was. He was Winchester, wasn't he? Was he Winchester or Marlborough? That's I think right. He was yeah. But my my classic one with him is is going in. I discovered as prisons minister that we had people in prison for not paying their TV license and not paying their council tax, and it seemed to me completely absurd. Right. As as we said last week, it's more expensive sending someone to prison than it is sending them to Eton, and it really screws them up. And we have overcrowded prisons, so we shouldn't be putting people in prison for not paying the TV license. And I went into this meeting with him where he was representing his department. I think he was speaking up for people being in prison for not paying their council tax. And I thought, okay, I know Rishi well. We sit there with John McDonnell in the library and I'll be able to charm him out of this. He defended his government line minute in, minute out for an hour with the civil servants looking on adoringly, making what I thought were the silliest arguments I've ever heard in my life. And I kept saying, Rishi, can we stop arguing? Just think about it. So step back cannot make sense to put people in jail for not paying their TV license and not paying their council tax. But he wasn't going to step back. He had his line. Mm. He'd been given it by the civil servants and he was going to argue it all the way. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I want to hear more about this little threesome in the library. Was John McDonald not chuntering at the period of the whole time? <laughs> He's pretty grumpy, John McDonald. He's got a very, very smart leather briefcase, though, I noticed. It always He's a very elegantly sort of turned out guy. 
But no, I never really managed to charm John McDonnell um, any more than I really managed to charm Rishi, I guess. Um, listen, questions. We've had a lot of questions in from listeners. And I wanted to get you going on a question that came in from this guy called Ben. Let me just pull it up. So Ben says, in Bernard Donahue's diaries, he writes that Jim Callahan thought that only Alistair Campbell of Blair's inner crowd was really Labour. Did Alistair feel that was true and that he had to protect the Labour tradition? Wow. I sh- we should probably explain Bernard Donoghue was an advisor to the then Labour Prime Minister, Jim Callaghan. Uh, he's as, almost as fanatical a diarist as I am, and you are. Uh, I, funny enough, Jim, I knew that was Jim Callaghan's view. Um, and I, I, I can tell you as well that Jim Callaghan, um, who actually was an old family friend of my in-law, in-laws, going way, 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 way back, and... I know for a fact because he told me that he was he was really quite pissed off that Tony saw Maggie Thatcher uh, after being elected before he'd seen him, and it wasn't a sort of status thing. He'd think he just thought it was he thought this whole sort of thing of reaching out to the Tories was going too far, and he did say to me, he says that you know I'm quite worried about the sort of politics of some of the people around Tony. I think all the people around Tony were were basically New Labour. Um, and 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 maybe sometimes I was a bit of a bridge to some of the more old Labour. Well, we're picking up a bit of that, aren't we, in the conversation last week where you said that, for example, you would abolish private schools and Tony would never have considered abolishing private schools. In that sense, you were reaching more back. So I guess that was Michael Foote's manifesto. By the way, Roy, lots of people were commenting last week, I don't know if you don't just say, they, they shared my worry about you that you kept every time we talked about Eton, you wanted to talk about prisons and you did it again a minute ago. You talked about these places ruining people's lives. So I think we're going to win you over eventually. Uh, listen, there's a question. Does that answer the question? I think it answers yeah, the question re- reasonably, reasonably diplomatically. Yeah. Um, now, listen, we had the tank. We had the guy, the tank last week. This one is from called Chris Crack the Whip on Twitter. And he's obviously obsessed with whips because he says, I think this is meant for you because you've been a, an MP and I haven't. Could you talk about your experience with and the future of party whips? Well, it's, it's a very, very strange thing. So it's right at the heart of the system. Um, they are the kind of septic tank of parliament or the sort of what, hidden wiring system of parliament. They're the, they, they see themselves the stuff that makes it all work. And... The public, and I think, I guess, myself as a relatively, um, yeah, uh, you know, wanted to be an independent-minded MP, can see the, the downside of them a lot. Because obviously what they're doing is they're whipping you in behind the government vote all the time. And they're unbelievably effective at it. I mean, people don't understand. I, I tried to explain to the public that when often constituents would say, why did you vote with a party whip? You know, it's no excuse that these amazing things that often get attacked on Twitter. I thought Rory Stewart was a good guy. And then I looked at his voting record. Right? The point about the voting record is that MPs, doesn't matter their Labour, doesn't matter their Conservative, are voting with the three-line whip almost all the time. Mm-hmm. Even the most rebellious MPs, like the most crazy MPs will rebel maybe 5% of the time and they're considered complete lunatics, right? It's a sort of Jeremy Corbyn level of rebellion. Mm. Um, For somebody like me, a three-line whip means you will vote with the government on this or you will be kicked out of the party. And I experienced this twice. 
I experienced this because I got very het up with a deal that Cameron was cooking up with the Lib Dems, where he was going to abolish the House of Lords in exchange for redrawing the constituency boundaries, because he believed that the Conservatives would win a majority in the next election if they withdrew constituency boundaries. And I thought this was the most horrible way of rethinking our constitution for the worst possible reasons, the worst possible way. Well, so he, wasn't very, very, he wasn't very good at major constitutional change, was he? Uh, no, no. And there was a lot of belief and weird stuff. But anyway, um, I dug my heels in, wrote very politely to the whips, etc., and found myself on the day of the vote outside the lobby. And George Osborne said to me, this is 2012, I'm going to promote you in a week's time. But if you walk in through that door into the no lobby, you're not going to be promoted for the rest of this parliament. That was what, So I walked in and obviously I wasn't promoted for the rest of the parliament. And George Osborne was very pleased with this and kept reminding me of this over the five-year period that the reason I wasn't promoted is that I'd voted against you. And the next time I, I rebelled was obviously over Brexit, at which point I was thrown out of the party uh, and lost my seat, you know, lost my whole life in Cumbria, etc. So I think that's the first thing that is difficult to understand is that people imagine that they sort of look at the voting record and they think that MPs are sitting there day after day, mm. individually choosing what they're voting on. Mm. The decision to rebel against your party is a really, really big deal. And you do it maybe once or twice when you're really prepared to blow your career up. And the, the, we should, there, there are probably people, even though I'm imagining most of our listeners are pretty plugged into politics, otherwise they wouldn't necessarily want to hear us two going on. Um, but the three-line whip thing, is that that's about the lines written under when you get the the note about the next week's business. Yeah. So three, three lines underneath. Three, three lines underneath, yeah. yeah. Although all that's gone out the window because you now get your whip yeah, on your exactly. telephone yeah. and everything seems to be a three-line whip. There don't seem to be any <laughs> one or two-line whips anymore. Um, but I suppose just to finish this sort of story about whips, in favour of the whips, what they would say is that the public have voted for a government. They've voted mm. for a manifesto. And the public expect the government to deliver that manifesto. And yeah. it's not good enough for each individual MP to make up their mind on every single vote exactly how they feel. Otherwise, the public would have no predictability at all. Right? They'd vote for a party and they wouldn't get any business done. Um, so, uh, But my goodness, that is an impossible thing to explain to angry constituents. I think like, also, what on I think, earth I th are you doing voting on that one? No, I also think members of the public don't necessarily always understand that if you're a member of the government, a minister or a whip then it's, a, it's effectively a resignation offence not to support yeah. the government. Yeah, if you, if you don't vote for the government, you, you, you resign. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And so you're having to decide, do you want to be a member of this government? Do you want to member of the party or not? Mm. Um, it's not that you're going into each vote. Make up and the sad thing about that, which we almost never talk about, but is, of course, the guilty secret of Parliament, is that as a result, the vast majority of MPs barely bother to find out what they're voting on. Mm. Unless it's something that's been really brought to their attention by a constituent or a lobby group, people are filing in and out of the lobbies, could be voting seven times in a day. And if you say to them, what are we voting on? You'll, I notice this young MP, they'd have to glance up at the screen and mm. go, um, uh, Academy's bill, second reading. And if you said, okay, what, what is the Academy's bill, second reading, they'd whop you around the head for being a cheeky bugger. And they wouldn't have read the, the whip's notes on it either. And I see then you end up situations like you had on Monday night this week where Labour bring forward something that would actually help to deal with this wretched situation of P&O uh, firing and rehiring sort of cheap Labour. And Natalie Elphick, did you see the, the, the Dover MP who she went down to join 
She went down to join the demonstration against P&O, and there she was, joining in with the cries of shame on you, shame on you, not realising that they were being directed at her and eventually sort of scuttling away. But she, last night, there she is in the in the, in the the lobby. Um, so that kind of thing, she's going to get absolutely savage for that, I would have thought. Yeah, but both, but, and of course both parties do it. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very partisan. They They just won't vote, even if what the other side is... Pr- proposing is pretty sensible. It's very, very rare that they'll ever vote for it. So the question question coming in, and it was uh, this one from David by email. It's delighted to see Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and Anusha Ashuri return home and be reunited with their families this week. I wonder though, why now has the government paid our debt to Iran? I can't help but think it's related to our wider political aims. Hmm. What do you think about that? Well, I think actually what's happened is that Liz Truss has come in and said, enough of this. We owe them £400 million and we've got British citizens tied up and we're going to pay it sometime. So we might as well get it done. Yeah, I I think another factor might be Biden. The fact that Trump just would not have countenanced doing anything that the Iranians could possibly project as a good thing for them. So that may have helped it change as well. The thing that's really kind of uh, troubled me about this story is that, and I thought Jeremy Hunt spoke well about this today. Um, yesterday, you, you would have been tied up, you won't have seen this, but Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and her husband did a press conference. And the husband said that he wanted to thank the Foreign Secretary uh, for the role that she played, etc., etc., etc. And in a very nice, very quite gentle, very charming way, Nazanin said, um, look, I love him dearly, but I'm not going to endorse that statement. I want to know why it's taken so long, why there have been so many foreign secretaries that have made so many false promises, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Within no time, trending on Twitter was send her back. Um, And all these people, and what it said to me is that if you don't conform to the sort of, you know, media narrative that says, you know, we've got you back and Foreign Secretary Liz Instatrust has posed nicely for pictures with you, and you have to be grateful. Uh, and people just want to forget that Boris Johnson did make it worse. He did make it worse by saying that she'd been teaching journalists when actually she'd just been there on holiday. Um, and that sort of sloppiness. And then and then you saw the stuff yesterday at the Foreign Affairs Select Committee where Philip Barton, who I really like, is one of my favourite civil servants of our time, but because we have an amoral government was having to shift so horribly in his chair about the lies that Johnson's told about getting the animals out of Afghanistan. So I just I just felt this whole thing, you know, you, you it's as if you're not allowed actually to say what you think. These right-wing people are going about freedom of speech. I'd be bloody angry if I was her. I thought she was amazingly calm, considering. Yeah, yeah well, if she spent six years in M in jail, unable to see your husband, your children. Incredible. And, of course, the solution to the problem was there all along. Um, and so that's what she must think. Yeah. That, that in a way, look, you can understand why some people in the British and American government thought we shouldn't be blackmailed into sending money to the Iranians because they've taken one of our people hostage. Mm. Mm. But if you're going to do it, you might as well do it quickly. There's nothing to be gained for anybody by stringing the thing on for six years. Yeah, but I do think with, with Trump there, it was probably a lot harder than it maybe was with Biden. Well, listen, we've run, we've gone round the block. Uh, we've talked about lots and lots and lots of things. I think you probably need to go and have a kip. You look a bit knackered to me after your little trip. Um, and we'll speak again next week. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you, Elsa. Bye-bye.